You are listening to On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and role-playing gamers. On the Shoulders of Dwarves. Hello and welcome to On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and the people who play them. I'm a person who played them. My name is Rana Viram. And my name is Uri Lifshitz. Hello! And the both of us play role-playing games, but when we do, we usually do so in campaigns. But when we campaign, how do we know what to campaign? How to campaign? Let's say you have an idea for a game, and you sit down with your friends, and you all start thinking about which characters you'll have and what sort of plot you'll have, etc. Sure, fine, great, but at what point do you decide each of these things? Is it before you even begin the game? Do you as a GM approach your other fellow players and say, I want us to play this and this game with this and these things? Or do you maybe only decide on most of them during the first session? After you've already decided D&D 5 and that's it. And everything else was, de- was decided once you actually sat down and started playing. There are advantages and disadvantages whenever you decide to on one of these elements. It all depends on your style of play and what it is that you, as a group, are trying to achieve. And I would argue that there are three basic phases in which you can determine these elements. Better yet, let's list some of these elements so people will know what we're talking about. And I've chosen to focus on the five big ones, as I see it. Number one is the system, the game mechanic that you wish to play. This would usually be one of the first two things I would imagine you'll decide on. A lot of my campaigns started with, okay, let's play a game of D&D. Or, hey, I heard about this cool fate system, why not play this? The second, which is usually closely linked, is the setting. The world, the location, the metaphysics of how and what we're going to play. There's a huge difference between playing in an urban fantasy setting, shall we say, or a high fantasy setting, or sci-fi, etc., etc. Determining the setting beforehand helps us avoid a lot of problems later on, especially those such as, but I don't like science fiction, or why can't I be an elf wielding a machine gun? Number three would be the themes. What subject matter would we be handling in our games? Is this a game about the frailty of the human psyche? Is this a game about the relationship between parents and kids? Is this a game about the very temporal and bloody relationship between adventurers and wandering monsters? Could be. This is an element that could be determined by the game master or come up by the players. Number four in this short list is the plot structure. Your game could be an episodial game in which every session is its own thing. This could be a dungeon crawling game, which the whole point of the game is to crawl the dungeon. Nothing more, nothing less. This could be a game with an overarching plot. Or this could be a sandbox game where everything goes. And lastly, the fifth element, the nature of the characters. What will we as players actually be playing? Would we play young, inexperienced kids in this setting? Would we play hardened veterans? Would we play fish-out-of-water characters who are thrust into a situation they cannot handle? Will we play professionals who actually do their job, etc., etc.? In some systems and game settings, 
the nature of the character is self-evident. When we play D&D in Eberon, for example, we are expecting to be hardened adventurers, maybe in a low level, but we pretty much know what we're going to play. That is not true for many other systems and settings. Each of these elements can be solidified during one of three phases. Before the first game ever took place, during our session zero, or during the actual gameplay. And as Iran mentioned in the beginning, determining each of these elements during different phases have its advantages and disadvantages. Let's start off with the earliest point, before the game ever happens. Setting all or most of these elements before the first session usually comes in the form of the invite, or the teaser for the game. I, as a game master, have often sent out emails such as, Hi guys, I want to run a D&D 5th edition game set in Eberon. We will be exploring Zendrik, the wild forest of the south. This game would mainly focus on man versus nature and how you can't trust anyone in the wild. We're going to do a lot of dungeon crawling and hack and slash and just have random fun. As adventurers, I pretty much selected all the elements and hard-coded them to my players so they will know what to expect. So the main advantage here is that I as a GM would probably get full compatibility. Any player saying, sure, count me in, would know exactly what they're getting into, and I know that they're going to enjoy the game that I want to run. However, I would also argue that this is the biggest disadvantage of determining these elements at this time. Because you get no brainstorming. There isn't actually any point where the party can suggest improvement or new direction to take this game to, or to add more themes and maybe change the plot structure, such as saying, cool, I would love to do a dungeon crawling campaign. However, I would like it more if there would be some sort of an overarching plot to go with it. We have talked about some suggestions how to handle this phase in episode 29, matching the players to the game. But I think if you look closely at the elements that we've talked about, the system setting themes, plot structure, etc., you can immediately see the advantages and disadvantages of setting these elements so early in the process. My personal method here is usually putting the most emphasis on this step, yes. I usually come up with three to four pitches ideas to what I would like to play, and I transform them into more solidified, more concrete things using these elements. Like, for example, if I want to play, I want to play some 50 Fathoms, uh, I already say it comes with Savage Worlds, and I also say, and you will be like sort of pirates, and I also add, and I want to add some new elements to the world in the form of deep fruits, fruits of the deeps, which give you superpowers, etc. So I, I go through all of the elements that you've just said, and I explain what I am bringing to the table as the GM. And then I do so again for like three other concepts. And together as a group, we choose one of the concepts, and we continue on to the next phases where we sort of mold each of the elements to make sure that things are, you know, better for all of us. Like, for example, with the 50 Fathoms, maybe they don't want to play pirates, but we'll only discover this during session zero, which is the next step. The next phase in which you can determine more elements is during session zero. Session zero, if you are unfamiliar with the term, is a meetup of the gaming group to set expectations regarding the upcoming game. 
it is literally the purpose of this meetup to set up most of the elements we've discussed here. The main advantage of setting most of these elements during session zero is, in my eyes, the element of inspiration, where all the gaming group sits together and discuss these ideas you can raise new ideas, you can make suggestions, you can riff off each other. Themes and characters that the GM or each player by themselves wouldn't have thought of come up and take form. This is, like Iran mentioned, an excellent moment to mold things together, see how they mesh together, and weave something new out of the different ideas that each player brings with them. However, the downside of that is the element of compromise. Some people would like a dungeon crawl with nothing else. Some people would like a deep role-playing overarching plotline. Now, I don't think this is a real disadvantage, because I think it's better to learn of these problems and incompatibilities before investing more time and effort in your game. Maybe one of your players doesn't want to play in the vast jungles of Zendrix. Maybe they want to be in a town. Maybe they want to interact with as many NPCs as possible and discover the human landscape. Maybe that's what they like about their role-playing games. So by having that discussion and actually bringing that issues to the surface, you can also learn as a GM what your players enjoy. But as a player, you can also get what the other players want to achieve out of this game. This will allow all of you to empower each other and create the game you all want to play. This is why I think that it's really important to come with a pitch already in everyone's mind. Everyone already has some sort of an idea of what we are aiming for. And the compromise is the step in which we, we settle on the exact points along the scale where we want things to be at. And I actually send a questionnaire to my players at this stage a bit before session zero, or maybe in some ways this is my session zero, in which I ask them about what they would like to see, what they would not like to see, and all sorts of, of small little details regarding the themes and regarding the settings that we've already discussed, but only in general terms, because now it's time to make sure that we achieve compromises. We, we need to. We are a group. We are going to do something together. We, we have to meet at some point and agree on it if we want to continue on forward. Now, your third option of deciding on all these elements is during your gameplay. Sometimes we want to leave elements undiscussed, and that is fine as well, especially if your GM wants to keep some aspects secretive. For example, how the pieces would react to a sudden and unforeseen betrayal. This is something that, if discussed beforehand, would obviously ruin the surprise and the reaction. This is a tool that has its own advantages and disadvantages, but also has some ramification regarding the nature of the game. For example, sandbox games give the players more control over the subject matter their character will interact with. They can do whatever they want inside the agreed-upon world. So by definition, some of the themes and gameplay, as well as the nature of the character, might change during gameplay. And that is fine. Those are part of the definition of having a sandbox game. The main advantages that I see to develop aspects during gameplay is that they come up organically. Your players get to explore the world around them and decide on what topic to focus on. And when they choose, it feels like an inherent part of the story, which comes usually directly from their experiences in the game. It also lends an element of surprise, since the players do not know what to expect. And that sense of wonder is something that many games aspire to. 
On the other hand, the main disadvantage is the opposite side of that same coin, is the disappointment of playing a game that you slowly discover that you do not enjoy because it deals with themes that are not interesting for you, or that it has subject matter which you find unappealing. This is not to say that there is anything wrong with the subject matter chosen by the GM or the other players. If I would find myself in a World War I historically accurate game dealing with moral dilemmas of bombing various cities, I would not enjoy it. That is not the subject matter which I look for in my role-playing game. And had you told me beforehand that this would be the game, I would say, that sounds awesome, count me out, I prefer to go slay dragons. And that saves a lot of time and anguish in my eyes for many people. Still, if that is the route you want to go, just simply be aware of the advantages and disadvantage of postponing that decision and discussion on the elements to this late stage in the game. I think most Powered by the Apocalypse games try to do this specific thing. They try to push all of the themes and settings into the rules, into the rule set. So when you play, for example, Monster of the Week, you already know what sort of thing you are going to get into from the get-go. That's true for many games. For D&D, you sort of know what you're getting into. But, for example, in Fate, you might not know. I think the reason you're making this distinction on Powered by the Apocalypse is because Powered by the Apocalypse games all have their own implementation of the basic rule set. So what they implement the rules into, into which setting, into which moves, into what feel, is what differentiates them. So it's very important for them to spell it out. The decision on these elements is what differentiates this powered by the apocalypse hack from any other. Sure, uh, and also it's what actually creates the different game experience. And I think most importantly, it resonates with this, with the during gameplay stage. Because the main thing that part of apocalypse games say is play to find out. You get into the game and you organically develop everything, both the player and the GM. Explore the world together and decide on the world together but they don't really decide on the theme and they don't decide on the setting and they don't even decide on what it is that players do because that's all in the rules. That's already in the system that they are playing. So that, that might be the most interesting thing about PBTA games, that, that they managed to push most of the expectation, most of this uh, solidification process into the rules so you can actually sit down without any of the previous stages and just start playing. And that's one of the reasons why they're great for uh, one-shots, by the way. We've mentioned some aspect of this in episode 19, customizing the campaign to the players, about the process of ongoing customization of your gameplay to suit the players. This is an inherent part of not deciding on these elements beforehand. And again, that put a lot of strain and pressure on the GM to make adjustments on the fly as the game progresses. I want to talk a bit now about some other considerations, something you should think about when you sit down to try and solidify your game. I'm not sure where these go into the framework that Uri, that you've just laid out before us. Maybe just things that you should think about, which is why I call it considerations. First of all, you might not want to have an actual campaign. Maybe you are actually just looking for... Maybe you just want to have some one-shots. I call it a tasting menu. It's something that I've done with Uri in the past and something that I've done with other groups and will definitely do again in the future. It's just sitting down 
and trying a one shot of something and next week someone else will sit us down and try a one shot of something else. So we are switching GMs, we are switching systems, we get to taste all sorts of various little things. Maybe one of them will be awesome and cool and we'll decide to continue on into a full campaign. Sure, but maybe not. And that's fair. That's, that's great. I just want to point out that when we did that, Project Gecko, as we called it, we actually sat down and decided on this beforehand, of course. Yes. We said, we're going to play a campaign and we decide that the game mechanic will change every one or three sessions, that the setting would be different based on the system and that the setting... W- in which we will play would be the basic setting for that specific gaming system because we want to get the full experience of a specific game system. And because of that, the nature of the game plot was always episodial or dungeon crawling, something very short-timed, a single session or two, three session adventures, so to speak. Yes, so it was something that we've all decided on as what we will be doing with our RPG time, which is definitely what this episode is about. It's just, it went in a different way, and it's interesting. Another thing that is interesting is the concept of your framing. Like, you might say, yes, we all want to play D&D 5 in the world of Eberron, but I don't want to GM all of the games. How about we switch GMs? And then I run an adventure, and you run an adventure, and maybe they are all for the same characters, and even in the same world, but we, we switch around. And that's, again, something that we might decide upon even before we start the game, but it might be something that only eventually solidifies after we started playing. And I, as the GM, realized I don't really want to run a lot of games, and one of you, the players, decided that you would actually love to try it. The next point to think about is fronts. We've discussed this at length in episode 86, derailing the campaign back on track in which we talked about what are fonts and how to use them. And I think that they are a useful thing to think about while you go through these stages. For example, maybe if you say, I want to play a game in Eberron in D&D 5 during year before the game stage, you still don't have any font. In other words, you don't know what the conflict is about. You don't know what, what will be the antagonistic force against the players. And that's fine. Maybe you only start deciding on it during session zero, while the players create characters. And you say, ah, this character came from that and that land, and they have some enemies. And now you start thinking of a font. And it could be that fonts only solidify during gameplay. As a GM, thinking about fonts and when to make them into a more actual thing and less of a general idea in the back of my head, that's an important skill to have if you are using fonts. And you should think about them, consider them throughout this whole process. The next point is about having a closed-ended campaign. Generally speaking, all campaigns have a final sessions, but not all of them have an ending. And we think that you should head toward an ending. You should be aware of the day where the campaign will end, and you should listen to episode 69, Ending the Campaign, in which we discussed all the ways and all of the considerations you should have. Memento campaign mori is, is probably the right phrase. <laughs> Remember the end of your campaign. You might want then to consider having a mini campaign. Maybe you just want to run seven, eight sessions and that's it because that's that's your story and you have nothing else to say after that. And that's fine. That's awesome. Maybe you have a campaign that will stretch out throughout two years. But the most important thing is thinking about some sort of ending. 
It's fine having an open-ended campaign. It's fine saying, sure, guys, let's just play D&D 5 and I'll just buy some adventures from DMs Guild and we'll just play them one after the other. That's fine. That's great. But at one point, you should start thinking about when this will end because it's way better to actually bring it into a satisfying, dramatic end and not just let it stop, which is annoying. Another thing to consider is characters. Of course, you'll have characters, but will you be switching between characters? Like, for example, with the famed and strange Western Marchers format, in which you have a character, but you might be part of a group of about 20 players. And every week, only like four of you play, and the others don't. Then next time, you bring your character and you'll play with some completely other group of people, therefore. And next time, maybe your character will die, and you will therefore bring a new character next time. And we're talking about a pool of players and characters, and not actually a party. And also, perhaps, you switch between characters because it's actually two campaigns, and you're playing one in the past and one in the future, or one in this part of the world and one in that part of the world. Or maybe you play a long campaign with all sorts of mini one-shots throughout it, and you switch characters all around. That's not the default assumption, but it's something you should consider at least. It's something that you should think about while going through the stages because maybe it's the sort of thing that will spark some sort of an idea in your mind or in your player's mind and they would love to try something like this out. The next thing you should think about really like from the get-go is what keeps the pieces together. Th there must be a reason. There must be some reason for them to be adventuring together. In all adventure paths, they always start with some explanation, with some reason why the pieces are together. Well, the good ones. In many gaming systems, this is an integral part of forming your party. Indeed. Not just deciding on character, but deciding on the party, deciding on the group, on why are you adventuring together, what holds you together, what are you moving forward toward as a group. But still, in some games, and D&D among them, there's no good reason. There might be some suggestions in the book, but as you go through the stages of solidifying your campaign, you must think about what will make the PCs keep on adventuring together. It could be that from the get-go, your most basic idea and concept is you all belong to the same organization and they send you on missions. Excellent, that's great. But it could be that you're up to step three, you're in the game, and you still have no idea why the players are together, even though you already have the characters. That's a problem, and that's something that needs to be solved, maybe in a meta level, maybe you need to talk about with the other players. Finally, it's something that you should always discuss during session zero, but uh, if you won't be discussing it in session zero, it will come up. Handling characters' death. I wanted to keep it to our Session Zero episode when we talk about what to talk about in Session Zero, but I think it's actually quite important here as well. Because if, for example, we begin with the assumptions that uh, you are just heroes and this is just a fantasy world, I, as the player, will come with the assumption that I might die. But perhaps some other player will come with the assumption that, ah, I'm the hero of the story, I will never die. That's not a small thing because it really sets the expectations once you get to the first danger. Are these goblins a danger or an obstacle for me to overcome? Am I going to die if I fail against these goblins? Or are they just here for me to show off how amazing I am with the sword? 
That's a big thing. And it usually depends on the question of how am I likely to die? What will happen when I die? And stuff like that. Because simply because that's the most usual consequence of danger. Why is a thing dangerous? Because I might get hurt and I might die. Simply deciding on whether or not your character is likely to die and or likely to die randomly does a huge amount of mental shift for a player. In games where I know that my character will not die randomly, I would usually be more at ease in any combat situation. Mm. However, I have played games in which the GM was fully upfront. I am currently playing a game <laughs> in which the GM is absolutely upfront about the fact that, as the meme goes, if he dies, he dies. The dice will determine your fate. And I am terrified half of the sessions because I am never actually playing a useful combat character. So it's a different gaming experience to know about the level of mortality that your player character has. Let us surmise, therefore. Uh, we, we've talked a lot. There are a lot of things to think about. You might want to consider reading about it on Odyssey, the complete Game Master's Guide to Campaign Management by Engine Publishing. It's an amazing book. It's really good. I'm not sure they say anything that we haven't discussed here, but it's laid out in a pretty easy-to-read manner, and it's available in a PDF wherever PDFs are sold. Of course, we'll have a link in the show notes. You should really check it out. Check out the show notes, I mean. As that as well, yes, both of them. <laughs> I think we can summarize pretty much most of what we said during this episode in saying that setting each element in the right phase can really help both GMs and players to join and play the game they really want to play. So I would urge each and every one of you to think about which of these elements are really important to you as players or as GMs and make sure you know what you're getting into the next time you start a new campaign. And now it's time to take the load off! This world is carried on the shoulders of the war. This is the part of the show in which we usually talk about role-playing games in our own personal lives, but this time we'll talk about creating role-playing games in our own personal lives. Uh, Uri? Yes, I've been working my butt off during this last week, working on my adventure. And of course, like so many GM, I fell into one of the most known potholes in doing anything. I created an adventure, I ran it, it was awesome, I got a lot of positive feedback, I sent it out for playtesting, I got a lot of positive feedback, and then I said, well, it's a nice adventure, but I think maybe it will work a little bit better if it has a system designed specifically for it. So now I'm writing the system for that adventure, and it got its own playtesting, etc., etc., etc. I feel like this is a lesson I should have learned 30 years ago when I started GMing, if you're writing a campaign, you should run the campaign, not plan it for a year and a half and then run it. But yeah, I guess something we never learn because it's in our nature. I am also working on revamping our Patreon page. So if there's any suggestions or thing you would like to get as benefits from our Patreon page, simply write us an email to show at dwarfcast.net and saying, I would give money for this. Do this. And we'll probably do this. Why not? I have been working on my board game, which is based on Crystal Hearts, and uh, an adventure that is not yet ready to be publicized. I have not been working on my role-playing game because 
I am quite disheartened by my playtest that uh, took place a few weeks ago, and I'm still looking to... I don't want to say inspiration, because inspiration does not come. Inspiration needs to be harnessed and created. I'm looking for something that will uh, encourage me to go back into the game and open that tab, which is waiting on the left side of my Chrome. Go back to that tab and read through my game again and get back into it, because I'm currently afraid of it. And that's something that must be overcome within the next few weeks. And uh, of course, I will let you know when, because th this is the part of the show when we talk about role-playing games in our personal life. All I've heard is, Uri, we should do an episode about overcoming your fears and getting stuff done. <laughs> now, talking about episodes that we're doing, I would like to remind you all that you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Facebook, Uri opened a few days ago, even a week by now, I think, uh, a post asking what topics we should do, and you've answered. And this episode that you've just listened to was inspired by those answers. And we'll be keep on going back to them and answering more answers with episodes. If you want to send us a a direct email with a direct suggestion for a direct episode, do so at show at dwarfcast.net or look us up in Facebook and Twitter and send us a, a private message or posts. That's it. Excellent. We'll see you next week on our next episode every Monday. Ladies of Dwarfs is shared under Creative Commons by Attribution and Non-Commercial 4. Intro and outro are by the Cliché Dio. And you can email us at show at dwarfcast.net. On the shoulders of dwarves.